G'day, and it's time to talk about Australia's favourite obsession of property. My name is Jeremy Cowan, and today to talk about the Alfington Paper Mills is my guest, Andrew Bacala from Glenville Homes. Andrew, welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. G'day, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here and invited for the podcast. Andrew, I, um, I'm really, um, really, really pleased that you're joining us uh, with this because this is a really special project, isn't it? This Alfington Paper Mills, it's a, uh, it's a landmark project for for Melbourne, and it's got a whole lot of history and significance. Um, it is, of course, the largest infill residential um, site in Melbourne's history. So I was wondering if first up you can describe a little bit of the excitement that is surrounding this project. Yeah. There is definitely quite a lot of history, um, very significant site for the local community. So a lot of the locals who are now buying into the project, they would have had family or people that they knew that actually worked there. You're currently working for Glenville on this Alfington paper mill project. So maybe first it'd be great if we took a moment for you to describe exactly who is Glenville and, uh, you know, what's, you know, because it is a big, complex construction company, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Um, so they've got quite a bit of history themselves. So Glenville was founded uh, back in 1952, 54, and it okay. was um, founded by Mike Orson, who I believe migrated from um, Denmark. Uh, yeah, so he came out, set up just as a residential home builder, but it's certainly brought in a bit of innovation with design and um, anyone local to Melbourne and especially the inner east would be quite familiar with the brand. So they had their roots really around that Bulleen, Doncaster area, which, right. you know, back then were the outer suburbs. But now, um, you know, it's sort and of... And we're talking point. Melbourne outer suburbs here, aren't we? Correct, yeah. So back in the 50s, that was the outer suburbs. But um, now, you know, suburbs like Bulling, Doncaster, Burwood, they're sort of blue ribbon, um, you know, the, the that eastern belt. So, yeah, they're quite sought after um, areas now. So, yeah, they always set up as a bit of a premium home builder as well. Right. They, were, they were, that's sort of how they positioned themselves from the get-go um, and they you know, the family, the Warson family just grew the business through, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, um, you know, building on their reputation. And, yeah, they were always a, a desirable brand. So not like super upmarket, but, yeah, definitely. But a good quality builder. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a number of different, there's a number of different, um, you know, it is a big company. Um, there's a number of different divisions in there, isn't there? Correct, yeah. So through the 80s and 90s, um, you know, obviously they had the ups and downs with the rest of the economy at the time, but they expanded into developments. So they would acquire um, development sites themselves and then build out with the sales, marketing and delivery of a project. So you've got Glenville as a group and then Within that group, you've got Glenville Developments who go acquire project sites and then Glenville Projects, which is who I formerly work for. And that's the building, the building arm, let's say, of the development business in a way. 
So, yeah, they're the and three then main arms. I was going to say, and um, uh, so so, do you want to describe your role? Because um, you are a contract administrator, aren't you? So what does that mean, and, and, and what is your role within Glenville? Yeah, so day-to-day, uh, my role, I've really got to be sort of three to four months ahead of where the project is as far as all the planning is concerned. So a um, big part of it is negotiating contracts with suppliers and trades. So, you know, we'll have an upcoming stage. We send out tenders. Uh, we negotiate scope of works, inclusions, exclusions, specifications. Um, obviously, price is a big one, naturally. And, yeah, once we get a project pretty much complete, you know, as far as all the allocations for trade supplies, who's doing what and how, then we look to hand that over to the site team and they start building it. And So, so when you're talking there, you're talking everything from, um, you know, concrete as um, an excavation to, to put down a slab all the way through to, you know, putting a, a, a you know, getting roofers into to, you know, put the roof deck on as well as plumbing, electrical, plasterboards, chippies, cabinetry, the whole works, aren't we? Correct, yeah. So really being on a project site like this, we really start at civil stage. So we'll have negotiations with civil contractors um, and then there's a handover from the developments business to us. So they bench the site, so get the levels right for us to then go in and excavate footings. So from that point all the way to handover and settlement with the client when they pick up the keys and move in. So that original um, scope of work does that include um, you know the roads, uh, not only just you know excavation and and making sure the site's level and prepared, etc. Does that include um, you know the, the roads that come in and 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 the gutters, the footpaths, that sort of stuff, so that you know you get good access to uh, to the site? Correct. Yeah. So there is a a crossover point, so you know, a civil contractor will go in do services, gas, water, um, sewage, stormwater, and then they'll build the road up to a point where they'll do really the substrate, so they'll compact the ground, but they won't do any asphalt or curbs. Yes, yet. they really do that once we're getting closer to the end. And what would and what sort of size would a typical site be that we're that we're discussing here? Yeah, so uh, Alfington's probably a bit of an outlier in size, being so big. That's 16 and a half hectares. Uh, typical site that we might get would be, you know, ranging anywhere from, say, 30 homes to about 100 homes. So you would say, you know, size-wise, you know, anything from, say, three to five hectares might be a typical kind of project site that we would take on. And so with the contracts that you would be uh, negotiating and, uh, and, and, and getting the subbies, et cetera, on to, to do that, you know, scope of works. So those, that, that, that scope is set by the engineers and architects and designers and alike, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. So there's quite a lot of coordination and overlap. Uh, obviously, we've got a planning scheme that we have to abide by, set by state government, local government. Yes. Um, you know, once we get approval town planning, the scheme of the project is approved by council, and then we go out to tender 
uh, first step is we'd run through consultants. So consultants do, you know, civil engineering um, services. You know, do we need substations for power? Do we need to build a bigger water mains for water, etc.? So there's a lot of um, coordination with, uh, you know, water authorities, power authorities. Um, you know, everyone's got to agree that what we're doing is compliant and within a specification that they can approve. And then yep. we go out to market or out to tender with civil contractors based on that. And so when you are negotiating to a water contract, um, you know, what's the most important What's the most, typically what's the most important point of that contract? I mean, obviously cost is going to be very important. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 the time frame, um, quality control, you know, what's the hardest thing, you know, from your point of view? Um, and what's the highest level of responsibility that you have? Yeah. Uh, for me personally, it's finding a contractor that's capable of delivering, um, and reading between the lines and seeing what that contra- contract has actually delivered on in the past. Everyone you talk to, they all want the work and they'll all say, yes, I can do it. But, um, yeah, making sure that they've got the capacity to deliver is kind of the, the elephant in the room for me when I'm talking to people, definitely. So how do you go about working out whether they can deliver a pro on a project? Uh, usually, if you've been in it for long enough, you know, there's sort of a bit of a hierarchy of, you know, who can do what. So you get to know, you know, from mind working at previous similar roles, um, you know, you work with contractors, you know, if they've burnt you or they can't deliver, then, you know, they sort of fall to a sort of second tier. But, yeah, you've got your preferred contractors that you can – that have demonstrated delivery either on other projects for other builders or – through personal experience. And what about that whole point of, um, you know, you're, you must spend a lot of time on site with the coordination and negotiation of trades. We know that, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, variations on contracts is, is where life starts to get very expensive. Um, how do you ensure that, you know, you don't have those, you don't have to deal with those variations that, that the contracts cover the scope of works, um, you know, adequately? Yeah, definitely. Always a tricky one. And I think the nature of the beast is that you're always going to get variations. Um, it's really a matter of the upfront work. So the pre-planning, um, having good document control, a uh, good level of detail with documentation. And really you want to work in with the contractor that, you know, they're not going to just give you an upfront price necessarily. And then with a heap of exclusions. You want to make at least an allowance for as many inclusions and foreseeable events that you can. And sometimes it's hard to quantify that. So, you know, you might make an allowance and that'll cover you for the majority of the cost. And then that variation, when it does come through, will be vastly reduced from being completely omitted to, you know, a reduced sum. So that's one thing that um, you know, I certainly try to impress on contractors to be as inclusive as physically possible. So how does that work then? You're standing on site, a variation needs to be made. 
Um, do you make that call? Does it need to go back to the architect? Uh, you know, how do you coordinate, um, you know, how that's actually dealt with? Yeah, well, there is a quite a few variables to it. Um, if it's unforeseeable, we can sometimes go back to our client, which is Glenville Developments, and say, you know, such and such scenarios come up. There's, say, ground conditions that were unforeseen. You know, we've got to do additional work for footings. You know, that's going to be a variation because that's over and above yeah. what was tended for. Yes. Uh, sometimes, you know, we may pick up a purchaser variation that was, say, we missed hypothetically, and then we just have to lump that. You know, um, and that comes down to our sort of documentation control and looking over each and every um, home that we hand over. Yes. So, yeah, there's there's sort of the two extremes. Sometimes we can go back to the client. Sometimes if it's our fault or, you know, if we're liable, then, yeah, we don't have an option. We have to wear that cost. So in the context, how much time would you spend on site? How much time uh, do you spend... Um, you know, looking over contracts and 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 trying to solicit, um, uh, you know, tradies to do actually the work. Yeah, so I'm based out there in um, the old display office. So, you know, in a way, I'm there full time. Um, as far as being on site, I'll probably catch up with um, other trades and contractors probably two, three days a week, full time, almost. Yes. Um, and that's probably exaggerated now because we're still appointing a lot of packages. Um, once we start shifting more into the management of it, then I'll probably spend a bit more time in the office just working on progress claims and making sure, you know, each contractor supplier submits an accurate progress claim and then approve for an invoice to be raised against that. So it's a big site, as you said before, 16 and a half hectares or thereabouts. Um, you're obviously not responsible for the building of every property on that, uh, on that site. How many, how many homes are you looking after? Yeah, no, definitely not looking over all of it. Um, I would be personally responsible at the moment for looking after 68 homes. And right. That's, a stage within the precinct that we're delivering, and that's a mixture of 20 townhouses and 48 apartments. And so, as you said before, you know, quality, time, cost, um, you know, they are your responsibilities for the delivery of those homes. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. From what happens when what happens when costs start to blow out? What do you? What, how do you deal with that? Yeah, uh, always a, always a prickly subject internally. Um, there's a lot that we do around value management. So we'll get, you know, we'll be appointed by our client, Glenville Developments to deliver a stage. And really, as long as we satisfy the design intent, we tend to get to value manage a fair bit. So we can't make drastic changes. But if yes. we find other products or, you know, other building methods that can satisfy the design intent, then we can certainly look at that. So that's a pretty active part of the role as well. You know, as we're working through packages, you know, um, cladding, framing structure, 
you know, we're always looking you know, at alternative methods, how we can still remain compliant, you know, to the BCA, but still find, you know, an alternative solution, so to speak, to, well, to drive costs down and, you know, keep efficiency. And when it comes to time, I mean, you work in, um, uh, you know, obviously the state of Victoria, Melbourne specifically, that is, um, you know, notorious for uh, its weather, um, you know, four seasons in one day, as it's often called. Um, rain um, must play a part from a timing point of view, as as same with um, uh, the heat. Um, my understanding is that almost as many days are lost due to due to heat as there is uh, rain. So, how do you you know how do you keep a project of that size uh, on a timeline? Yeah, definitely pretty tricky um, with rain delays. And it comes to timing and how you, how you sequence the start of your project. Ideally, we don't pour all the slabs over winter. Um, concrete pours in winter don't go well together at all. Um, always you get delayed and pushed back. So you try and sequence your start of the project, you know, at a time that's, you know, going to be suitable. So if you're outdoors, you want to pick the better weather. Yeah. Uh, once you once you're above ground level, yeah, you've you've got a roof over your head so you can start pushing internally. That's fine. Um, with the, uh, it's funny speaking about the hot days. We're actually non EBA, but right on the on our same site where another developer's bought a portion of the land, um, they are EBA. So. You know, we'll be walking past them at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock on a hot day and they're all gone, but, yeah, we're still right. working. Right, but your guys are still going. Indeed. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so is is the weather the main – is that the main problem you face with regards to keeping something on time or is it, um, you know, trying to get trades there, um, you know, to coordinate and, and, and follow on and, and not losing time between trades? Yeah, that's probably the big one. I think you're spot on there. So coordinating sequence or building sequence between trades, that's really where, you know, a program or a construction program gains or loses. And it's really being on top of um, follow-on trades. So you're setting up, you know, a particular element so that follow-on trade can get in and get out. And, And that's really driven by the site team to make sure you know, say framing's complete, so then roof cover can go on, we get yeah. frame pass, we can start cladding and moving internally. And how do you make up for time when you start to fall behind on a project? Yeah, uh, we can work Saturdays, so we try to push people to work on Saturdays. Um, if the program's really starting to slip and a particular contractor's not keeping up, then we'll look at engaging someone else. And we do have clauses in our contract for scope reduction. So if a contractor falls behind program a certain amount, we can, um, you know, subject to a clause, engage someone else. When you time sequence at the start, you know, you're mapping out the project, you've got a piece of paper and a pen, you don't have to deal with um, the weather, you don't have to deal with the flow of trades. Um, you know, you obviously can create an idealistic 
um, time frame and, and, and smooth running of a project um, in the planning phase, how much time do you allow for the contingency to uh, for lost time and, and then to make up? Yeah, there must be yeah. some fat in, in your timelines. Yeah, so you do write in um, when you're programming some slack. Uh, you have to because you can't foresee every single event, i.e. COVID. Yeah. Um, so really it flows down to with um, the sales process. So each home sold off the plan to an owner. Um, so there'll be a sales contract say handover delivery date. Yes. Um, that will always be longer than our program. So our program will be a lot shorter for delivery. So the difference between, you know, when we hand over, but when we contractually need to hand over to a client, there's quite a fair bit of buffer in that. Um, so, you know, we'll push as hard as we have to. Um, and as soon as we, get occupancy permits, you know, we can trigger for settlement. Um, well, not as soon, but thereabouts, we get occupancy. Um, yeah. We can start registering for titles, etc. But, yeah, with sales, they will usually put in probably a good sort of six months on top of our forecast program, and that's the, you know, contractual date with the owner that we have to hand over by. Yeah, okay. So you mentioned COVID before, so that's a good segue into um you know, this current project that you're working on. You know, how has the COVID pandemic affected it and, and, and yeah, what impact has it actually had on the ground? Yeah, it's been quite substantial. Um for me personally, I've been just as busy as any other time because I can still work. Um, you know, from the office and we can do Zoom meetings, et cetera. So we're still yeah. pushing to appoint contractors. But on the ground, it's um, at one point um, earlier in the year, it was really just a day-by-day -day, uh, kind of reassessment of, you know, what the guidelines were from government and WorkSafe. So, you know, at one point construction was going to be closed. At one point it wasn't. So we, we tried to keep ticking through. Um, we did drop down numbers to 25% of what our theoretical capacity would be. Yes. We've been running on that for quite a while, for about three months. And it was just last week that we could go back up to 80, 85% capacity. Right. And yeah. I dare say over the next week or so, we'll probably get back closer to full capacity. So you've been involved in the construction industry for a long time, Andrew. Um, occupation, health and safety is a is a big issue in that industry. Um, you know, what sort of changes have you seen, and and what's the um, you know what's the feeling on site with regards to you know those safety um, concerns and how it's dealt with? Yeah, you get quite a mixture. Um, probably the biggest change I've seen was quite recent, where. Um, the state government in Victoria brought in um, industrial manslaughter laws. So that makes people personally liable. So if I appoint someone in my role and I make them do an unsafe task, I'm actually personally liable for that now. Yeah, right. I can't just sit behind, you know, the company and 
you know, their yes. policy. I'm actually personally yes. culpable. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. It's definitely brought a tightening, um, a, a, a tightening of the regime. And I think it's good. Um, I think that's where the industry needs to go. I just hope they don't overreach, you know, too much, but I dare say it's a good move. Um, and you get, I suppose, different views on it out there. You know, some contractors are really good with it. The contractors that have worked on commercial sites are really good with it because they've yes. had experience with unions and EBA. But the people, the contractors who are more, say, experienced in the domestic market, yeah, they still try and get away with, you know, leads, like electrical leads not tagged. You know, they turn up in gum boots instead of steel cap boots. You know, yeah, they don't wear right. a hard hat when they should. Yes. You know, mandatory across the whole site you wear a hard hat no matter where you are or what you're doing but yeah so it's that's you know with selecting a contractor as well um you know ohs record is definitely a big one as well you know we do background checks so you know if they've had any um court cases or if worksafe's taken action against a contractor then that will certainly be a strike against them when it comes to tender stage, definitely. So, Andrew, before we get to the project, um, just from a personal point of view, when was it that you discovered that you had a real burning passion for property? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll go back a fair way. I'd say when I was sort of later, late teenage years, um, you know, finishing off high school, thinking about, what direction to take in future. Um, yeah, really got into it probably, was it early 2000s? Um, mum bought the house in Bentley and I started renovating it with my brother at the time. Mum bought the house, we renovated it, and then we both decided to get go into trade. So my brother moved into being a carpenter. I went into furniture making, cabinet making. Um and then from there on, uh, yeah, we just sort of kept working. Um, and I got into my current role or this direction around 2010 um, and started getting it, got an estimating role with Metricon. And then, yeah, from then just, yeah, kept moving from Metricon to Sunland and now to Glenville. So as a cabinet maker, you'd have to have a pretty good um, eye for detail, wouldn't you? And, you know, finishes um, would be particularly important, which I imagine is a pretty important you know, part of your job. Um, you know, defects before you hand over are something that uh, sort of builders are notorious for. Yeah. I'd imagine you'd have a pretty good eye for detail and, um, you know, walking through a, the finished product, uh, looking for defects. Yeah, very much so. Uh, one Good thing that I certainly praise Glenville for. We put in a really big effort to hand over homes and present when the clients come through for handover. Um, the unwritten rule is they don't want any items picked up um, from purchases when they come through. Yes. So, yeah, we have quite an exhaustive QA process at handover, especially to get the homes, um, yeah, very presentable. And really, that's the name, you know, the Glenville name being that 
sort of where it sits in the market, the expectation is that, yeah, if you walk into a Glenville home, um, it's basically finished, ready, and to a high standard. So the Alfingdon paper mill project that you're working on, I mean, the beginnings of that go back to 1919 when um, the Australian Paper and Pulp Company purchased the original site um, on that well, that site at uh, Heidelberg Road and the Chandler Highway. Um, I did a little bit of research into this um, and I thought you know, it would be interesting for some of our um, listeners to, to, to learn that they actually paid £14,800 for that back in uh, 1919 and over that time the, the land was added to and it soon became the largest um, industrial um, complex of the area. But it's also... You know that um, Australian Paper and Pulp Company. They've they actually had quite a quite a history of innovation, didn't they? As well. I mean, and that's I think a great thing about you know what you've described about this particular project is that there's a lot of significance. There's a lot of history there, and um, you know, Glenville have taken on that history, um, you know, and incorporated it into into the project itself, haven't they? Yeah, very much so. So there's yeah probably the two main elements there. Looking at the innovation side. And also the history side, um, definitely two big themes of this project. Um, looking at the history side, um, yeah, there's a couple of, um, there's a number of heritage listed buildings there, which won't be demolished, but they'll actually be added to and converted into residential tenancies. Yes. Um, so that's, going to keep you know some of that history flowing into the next generations um, and from a innovation point of view uh, Len Warson who is the director of Glenville I think he really drove a sustainable project he wanted this development really to be a bit of a benchmark um, in, in a view into the future so a lot of the homes that are delivered we've got Tesla Powerwall um, battery systems incorporated, um, obviously solar panels, uh, rainwater reuse. That's quite, um, you know, every home has rainwater reuse integrated into the design from scratch. So there's a few things there, and it's going to be a very connected city, uh, very connected project. So lots of Wi-Fi connections, um, a lot of upgrades to the local infrastructure going in from um, communications in that way. So yeah, from an innovation. My understanding that it's actually many people actually call it um, Tesla Town actually for that very reason that um, because of the connectivity and uh, mm-hmm. and um, you know innovation that's been used throughout the project. Correct. Yeah, definitely. And it's a good opportunity, and I credit um, Glenville for doing it for taking that leap forward with it because it's really a proof of concept of how these um, technologies can actually be scaled up into a development this size. It's, um, I mean, it is a massive, um, a, a massive project. Um, you know, I was reading, you know, we're talking, you know, there's 13,000 square metres of retail. Uh, there's over 10,000 square metres of commercial office space. Um, the way in which it's been designed, um, you know, with childcare, aged care, community centres, uh, parklands. I mean, it's like its own little mini city in itself, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think it's going to 
probably triple the population of the suburb. Um, Elfington's quite a small suburb in that area, just kind of, uh, adjoins the Yarra River for a couple of kilometres. But, um, yeah, this is going to basically triple the, the size of that suburb. So. So we're talking shopping, leisure precincts, um, you know, community spaces. I mean, there's a whole lot of open parklands as well as in there. So, I mean, they're trying to create a real, um, almost like a village atmosphere. Is that, is that how it feels when you're, you know, when you're on site, um, you know, putting the project together? Uh, we, we know that's where it's heading to. At the moment, I'll be honest, it doesn't because there's a lot of empty land that's still getting excavated and trucked around and, um, dug out but um yes. yeah we, we we know the vision of of where it's heading and yeah i think it's going to be quite a special place in melbourne when when it needs completion so how far through the project are we uh we would be probably not even halfway at the moment so as far as a bit of a background um the first stage that was delivered was a house and land offering from Glenville. So they subdivided a portion. I think they had 70 lots and then they built their detached housing uh, or it was the detached housing offering. Then there was an apartment and some medium density um, stages that got released. And this year it's really ramped up quite a bit more. So there's another three apartment blocks that are getting built out. And as far as what's left, there's going to be the retail precinct hasn't started yet. Um, the aged care home or facility hasn't started yet. So that's all due to kick off probably over the next 12 months. Right. So, you know, we'll be, there'll be some work there for at least another probably three, four, four years. So just sort of stepping back a little bit, um, you know, with regards to the project. So, um, Glenville purchased the land, um, the 16.5 hectare um, plot, for about $120 million, wasn't it? Correct, yeah. Yep. And how have they, you know, what have they done, um, you know, with that land? Because they're not, Glenville isn't developing the entire, um, the, the entire project themselves, are they? No, that's correct. So what they've done, um, they've sold off, um, portions, so they call them super lots. So Caden was one of the developers who bought um, a parcel of land which is right on the corner of Chandler Highway and Heidelberg Road, um, locals would be familiar with, and they've just started building an apartment block there. Um, and there were two more parcels of land that were also um, sold at various times. So there was a 100-unit townhouse portion and the retail precinct was sold to another developer as well. So that would have no doubt helped with, um, you know, finance, um, financing the project as a whole and probably drawing down on some of that acquisition cost that, that upfront. And this is like we're talking, you know, all up development costs of around about $1.5 billion. So we're talking, you know, big development big money, um, and for this to occur, you know, there was a massive coordination of 
um, all three spheres of, you know, local, state and federal governments, wasn't there? There was a lot of permitting and planning that, that had to, um, that, that, that had to be undertaken. Yeah, very much so. And especially given the significance, size and location. So there's quite a few, um, sensitive sensitivities that had to get taken into account. Um, naturally, probably the big one is uh, borders the Yarra River. So, um, you know, there's quite a lot that the EPA has put in as far as environmental controls, uh, rainwater runoff, silt, you know, anything from site has to be captured and not just run off into the river. Um, local traffic management was quite a major element. So, um, finally the Chandler Highway bridge got upgraded as part of this, um, project. So that was in the making, I think, for about 30 years. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Another one of those government projects. Correct. They did it because they had to in the end. Um, there was no way that the old bridge, which I think goes back to 1919 or earlier, could service mm. this level of future traffic. So, yeah, local roads were upgraded. Um, local services and utility services were upgraded. So there's new substations going in. Um, water mains are upgraded. Um, yeah, telecommunications infrastructure is being upgraded. So... How many people are they expecting to actually, um, um, you know, populate this this development once it's finished? Yeah, well, at the moment there's a provision or the scheme is for about two and a half thousand dwellings. So, yeah, yeah, you know, right, that's a... be, yeah, there might be anywhere up to sort of between eight and ten thousand residents. Yeah. So you mentioned before about the. Um, um, the the need to be you know sensitive to that uh, Yarra River frontage um, and the capture of water runoffs and and the like is were there EPA and contaminant concerns within the site before you started? Yeah, there was quite significant actually. Um, so being an industrial site that dates back to the time period that it did through the um, through last century, there's a lot of asbestos. Um, a lot of lead contaminants, um, you know, there's a lot of it's more in the materials handling um, space. So, you know, an example of that is we were digging excavations for a basement and we came across an old drainage pipe that was an asbestos drain. So we had right. to put works on hold. Um, EPA came in, environmental consultant came in, they had to do a plan how we excavate it, how we remove it, everything went on hold. So, mm. yeah. Um, we can have a massive impact time-wise, budgetary-wise. I mean, is that sort of stuff, I mean, that must be budgeted into the contingencies we were talking about earlier. Correct, yeah. So you, you, we definitely do make an allowance for it. And what we can absorb, we do. But definitely there does come a point where we have to go back um, to our client and, you know, put a case forward for an extension of time mm. or cost cost variation. And it also stems back to going back to the acquisition of the site. So Glenville bought the site at that $120 million mark and in the negotiations with 
AMCOR, there was a agreed amount for remediation, which was at somewhere around, and I can't be 100% at around that 30 million mark. Yes. Um, that figure has gone over, and that right. matter is with the courts at the moment. So, you know, we may may be a scenario where AMCOR actually contribute to the remediation works from this point forwards. Right. Yep. And I was just going to make the point there too that – so that's – when we spoke earlier about um, the Australian paper and pulp company um, purchasing the site, I mean, it was that company that changed its name to Amcor in the, the mid-'80s and hence the reason that Amcor sold to, um, um, to, to Glenville, wasn't it? Correct, yep. And you mentioned about the significance of the site with regards from a heritage point of view. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about the the impact and um, issues that has occurred with the boiler um, that sits on the property? Yeah, so that um, boiler, it uh, depends who you talk to. It's either a landmark or an eyesore. Um, it's actually earmarked for demolition, the boiler house, and there'll be an apartment um, tower built on that particular site. And... Um, and- yeah, I was going to say that. Do you that? Um, so there was a there was a large, or there was quite a process that you had to undertake with regards to getting permission to uh, to be able to demolish or to demolish that um, that particular part of the site, wasn't there? Absolutely, yeah. And it is quite a sensitive area, being quite close to the Yarra River again, um, and that boiler house. Yeah, there's a lot of lead paint. There's a lot of asbestos lining, so. It was earmarked for demolition probably a year and a half ago, and there's still quite a lot of consultation going on um, as far as, you know, with the engineering, how to take it down, how to take the stack down safely, um, you know, how do we demolish it? There's still quite a lot in the background going on. So the approval for it to be demolished is there, but the process, um, yeah, that's still being... Um, detailed. Yeah, right. It's um, I mean, again, given the historic nature of the site and and given the fact that it sits over the different level of governments, I mean, what sort of impact and um uh, and presence has the local community had uh, on you know how the site has been able to be developed? Yeah. The- Definitely was some community engagement um, when getting the scheme through approval. I don't think too many people were necessarily opposed to it. It was definitely a site that needed some attention to and some care to. I think local traffic was a main one and the state government chipped in quite a bit to upgrade um, road networks. Um, And... With the local community, it's um, quite strange because, you know, going around the shops or just speaking to locals, a lot of the people who are buying in now, they would have family or relatives that used to work there. So it's kind of, you know, repurposing the site, you know, into the next, into future generations, really. And, yeah, it's quite incredible. Um, you, you know, you talk to people and they say, you know, my uncle worked there or, 
know, my mm. grandfather worked there and yeah. And again, given the fact that, um, you know, was it, or can you explain, um, you know, how the process went on between the three levels of government? You know, has there been friction there? Um, or have they been fairly, um, cohesive in their approach to this, um, you know, their view on this particular site? Yeah, uh, there's definitely always someone or, or parties that won't necessarily agree on everything. But, um, I think overall they were pretty relieved that that site would get repurposed and redeveloped. Um, so I think there was a, a consensus that you know, that something had to be done. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that people were opposed to inappropriate development. I think it was agreed that it was appropriate to develop that site. And I think the scheme, you know, was scaled back in some some regards. But um, overall, yeah, the, there seems to be a pretty good consensus across those three levels of government that, you know, the outcome will be greatly beneficial to that area. So this is the largest infill uh, residential site um, in the history in Melbourne's history. I think the second largest was uh, will overtake the Docklands. Mm-hmm. Where does the affordable apartments and affordable housing sit within this project? Yeah, so the, there are a couple of. Um, Apartment blocks earmarked for that. Uh, one that just got released, which is called Papersmith. So that was designed from the outset to be affordable. Um, and I think that's going to be 140 apartments there. Um, as far as the or detached housing, to be honest, there won't really be anything affordable there, but it's more in the apartment space where it's been designed. You know, there's a portion of the development that will be you know considered affordable housing going back to that idea of when um, the site was first purchased I mean how does the process for such a de- I mean this is a massive development we're talking about it's 16 and a half hectares you know we just say two and a half thousand dwellings um, you know we've got um, aged care, schools going in there, community centres. Um, I think um, I saw that both Coles and Audis have um, Coles and Audi have have signed in um, in the shopping precinct, etc. So this is a very large project. I mean, how does that process work? Because there's an enormous amount of risk attached to such a large project with so many variables, unknowns, and things that can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Well. With um, any project, once it starts getting um, to a larger scale, it definitely gets staged. So, you know, this project staged out into seven, six or seven different precincts, and each precinct is kind of like its own mini project in a way of its own. So um, the first precinct, which was a house and land um, offering, you know, that was developed and delivered, I think, over about two and a half years ago now. And each year, you know, each precinct gets developed out and delivered to to purchases. So, 
you definitely can't build it all at the same time because it'll just flood the market. So yes, and really you won't have a trade pool really big enough to just build everything out at once. So yeah, it definitely has to be staged out. Um, multiple, you know, building contractors get awarded as well. So, um, so what does that original pre and, you know, the feasibility study look like? Yeah. Uh, I would say notwithstanding the issue with the remediation works, I would say that, and I don't, I'm not entirely privy to the feasibility study, but I think they're still looking quite healthy with healthy margins on that site. Um, sales have maintained quite well. Even with um, COVID, they've made sales, albeit reduced, um, and interest has still been quite strong. So, And it's really the location that's driving that. Um, you know, you're about five, I think five and a half, six kilometres, you know, as the crow flies from the Melbourne CBD. So, um, That's a magnificent location, no doubt about that. Absolutely. So interest will remain strong, Um despite COVID. When the developer sees the site, how do they, what comes first? Is it the development vision? Um, is it the, the, the feasibility study? I mean, how does it all flow together to get to that point where, A, they then purchase the land and, and then start to, um, you know, really move the project on? Yeah, well, really... Um from um, previous exposure to that side of the development and acquisition process, it, it's really definitely driven by the vision of the um, of you know Glenville and definitely Len Warson, who's the director. So they would definitely go into negotiations for acquisition with the scheme in mind, um, and, and that would be have to be based on, you know, previous projects or what's been approved in that area in the past. But this project is quite an outlier to that because nothing of that scale has been done in that area. But, um, yeah, definitely the vision of what could be achieved would be the driving force behind the feasibility initially. And when negotiating on an acquisition, you know, say Amcor is selling the site, They'd have different um, bidders supply their their their, their bids and not or their offers. Um, you know, each each offer would have a different scheme attached to it, and there would be clauses negotiated into the uh, ultimate contract of sale. You know, pending certain approvals from state and local government. You know, the final. Um, you know, changeover or sales price will be X amount. Like it was 2013 that the original pre-purchase um, uh, occurred between the entities, and yet it took another three or so years for approvals um, to to come through before any works could commence. I mean, that that's an enormous time um, period as well as clearly an enormous amount of work that goes into it. Uh, let alone the financial cost of of holding a project um, with you know high levels of uncertainty about what you can actually do with that plot of dirt. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's a huge risk that developers take on, really. Um, you know, they'll go in wanting X, but, you know, local government or state government won't let them do that. So, yeah, that's definitely a pretty big risk that developers take on. And you'll often find with negotiations, um, you know, developers who are buying sites will try and underplay what they can get across. So then that gives them a bargaining chip to say, well, you know, we yes. can't build a hundred homes here. We can only build 80. So the value of your land is X amount, but yes. the owner of the land will turn around and say, well, no, actually we think you can get a hundred homes in. So we believe the land value is, you know, X, yeah, X plus. Amount. Yes. And where you meet in the middle, um, you know, it'll sometimes come over where you'll agree on, you'll either come to an agreement where you can say, well, okay, we'll get 80 homes and the balance payment may be, you know, due pending town planning approval for a higher number. So that can often happen as well. And that's part of actually the discussion that, um, you know, I was really keen to have Warwick Leeson on the podcast um, in episode one. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, episode two. Episode two was uh, was Warwick where, I um, mean, he spoke from a um, from the position of um, a mayor of a um, of a, a Melbourne council, um, and that's you know that it, it's huge amounts of work that goes on there, um, and a fair bit of toing and froing and uh, posturing that occurs, you know, when it comes to trying to work out, you know, what actually can be placed on a particular plot of land, and that of course has a huge impact, as you said, on the um, on the value that a developer will pay and the price that uh, the owner receives. Yeah, absolutely, and. You know, what defines appropriate development is, um, yeah, quite a broad definition, definitely. So there's a lot of other risks that as a developer, um, you know, will take on, um, as we've discussed, you know, the uncertainty of what they can actually get on the land. Um, we discussed the issues with regards to uh, remediation um, in in this particular case, as well as the heritage issue that um, uh, that sits on the site. Um, and you know, the, as you said, you know, you've got those other problems once the civil works um, starts to open up a site. Uh, you start to open up, as you said, you found a uh, an asbestos-based pipe. Um, you know those sort of issues that you don't know about, let alone you know how do you remove the um, uh, you know the 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 towel that holds the boiler etc. In, um, but there's a lot more there's a lot more risks um, you know that that they take on, isn't it? Um, you know your job as far as managing you know the time, quality, and construction price. Uh, but there's also the sales risk. Um, you know, 2013, as we said, was when this site was first purchased, where, you know, 2020 and we're halfway through or thereabouts the development. Um, so that's a, a long period for a developer to hold the land and the movement of, um, you know, the real estate um, prices and, and the construction uh, costs to uh, to change in that time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, this will be a, a decade-long project by the time it's um, completed. And in that time, you know, you can see how it ties into the cycle. If you're on the wrong side and you've got a, you know, GFC-type downturn, then, um, yeah, they can have a significantly detrimental impact 
to the fortunes of a development business. Um, I think, thankfully, on this site, uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly, 2013 was actually a good time to acquire it. Because, oh, great time to be buying, wasn't it? Yeah, you've still got... Especially in Melbourne, too. Oh, for sure, yep. You know, they've still got so much of the cycle left to unfold. Um, you know, there's a lot of upside there. The um, uh, the interesting part about this, I guess, will be the confidence that it supplies to other developers. Um, you know that that it becomes a prestigious and profitable project that will encourage other developers to take even bigger risks as the cycle unfolds. Until, as you said before, you know you get to the top of the cycle and and developers are buying pieces of dirt for a decade long. Um, in a project that um, unravels, you know, throughout another, you know, credit-induced land bust. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that um, at the, you know, peaks of all the credit-induced land busts where developers have taken on, you know, exponential risk, you know, and, and a, a particularly optimistic and, um, yeah, that that um, <laughs> becomes the the big news stories of the day. Do you think that, um, you know, the construction industry, I mean, you've been involved um, from an estimator point of view, you know, as you said earlier since, you know, 2010 or thereabouts, but been involved, you know, 20 plus years um, uh, with the trade and, and in other parts of the industry. Do you, do you think that that there's a lot of psychology that plays out in the building industry because, you know, when times are good, they're really good and when times aren't, they're they're bad. Yeah, you definitely see the the fortunes of um you know trades contractors suppliers builders developers ride those waves um to to extremes really. Um, when times are good and there's a lot of work, you know naturally it's harder to secure the better trades. Um, you know price escalation definitely comes into it. Uh, when things start getting a little bit shaky, and even with this COVID um, scenario now, you know we're getting a lot of a lot more phone calls of people asking, you know, have you still got this these packages available? You know, we'd like to put in a tender, even though we didn't go out to them initially. Right. So, yeah, you definitely see, um, you know, a lot of people in the industry um, riding the roller coaster. Has COVID then affected um, uh, the pricing that you've been able to obtain within the scope of works? Uh, to a degree, not massively. We've definitely got one big bargaining chip uh, and that's continued, continual work. So, you know, with the, pro or the precinct that we're on, we're going to be building well into next year, probably, you know, tail end of next year. So when times are uncertain, um, you know, Businesses, you know, they might not go in at a loss, but they'll go in at a very tight margin just to keep cash flow going. And, you know, that's where, you know, our position is quite strong for them because they can allocate, you know, their resource or keep the door open or keep the business afloat through a, through a downturn like this. So how does that compare to when you were putting tenders out, say, you know, three years ago or four years ago in Melbourne when the Melbourne real estate prices and market was really moving? 
Yeah, well, it's certainly a different picture there because, um, you know, pricing, you know, a lot of contractors would come back with um, somewhat inflated pricing. So you would have to pair that back, definitely. Yeah, and it and was harder I... to secure. It was harder to secure, you know, the, the the contractors that could deliver on a bigger project as well. So Glenville, as part of their risk management strategy, actually sold off um, nearly half of this project, haven't they, um, to reduce, you know, their time, money, and I guess just overall risk in the project. Yeah, they have um, definitely. So they've sold off. Uh, that I'm aware of three parcels of land, um, and that no doubt reduces their exposure, um, you know, to the risks that we've discussed. And I have no doubt will also help with financing and funding and drawing down on any um, debt that they'd have for the acquisition. So you find quite often on projects of this scale, um, developers, you know, might buy, say, a 10 hectare site and they'll sell half of it off. And then other developers who might be smaller in scale have then an opportunity to participate. And yeah, it definitely reduces the exposure to the initial purchase. It's interesting though with Glenville because as you said, they have sold off significant chunks of this project um, to reduce their risk, but they've also given away some stuff, haven't they? Um, my understanding is that the site came with some water rights um, that they've chosen to, to give away. Um, yeah, I did hear a bit about that, but I'm not too familiar with how that's played out, to be completely honest. Yeah. Um, so yeah. my understanding is that, yeah, that, that AMCOR gave away the, the the water rights to the Melbourne Botanic Gardens yeah. Um, as part of the project. And I imagine that was probably tied up with some of the environmental issues uh, with regards to um, the frontage on the Yarra as well, although I'm not 100% sure about that either. Yeah, well, I mean, I, there'd be no... Um, yeah, there's quite strict and very stringent protections on that Yarra frontage there. So, yeah, I think that would make sense why they would do that, definitely. So what makes this project to you so special Andrew what's um you know what is it that excites you about it yeah uh well on a personal level um it, it's quite fascinating to see how it's playing out time wise with the cycle um given you know when it was initially acquired and the different stages of how we're going to be delivering it um so that's on a personal level I suppose career-wise, there's a fair bit of job security there. Um, you know, Glenville is going to be involved with that site for at least another three years. So, you know, fingers crossed, I'll be able to be a part of that still. And also being quite a landmark project, um, you know, it's a good reference to have, you know, career-wise. Um, you know, you've worked on that project. You know, everyone, anyone who's the who's who of you know, builders in Melbourne and developers are, are quite familiar with it. So, wasn't say it's given you know a lot of prestige and a lot of goodwill to Melbourne, hasn't it? I mean, as a it is a very public, you know, and very positive project that's um, that's being undertaken. Yeah, definitely. And given the 
the old paper mill, you know, it turned into an eyesore really. So um, definitely needed some attention. And you know, from what I've seen, I don't think it's getting like overdeveloped. There's a good mixture of low rise, mid rise, high rise going in. So I think it's, yeah, it kind of strikes as good a balance as you could expect, I think, for a, a site like that. Was there anything else that we've sort of missed um, that you wanted to get across to uh, to, to listeners, um, Andrew, about this project? Um, I think we've covered the key issues. Um, I think, as I suppose, the yeah, it's just a very good case study for you know any aspiring developers or current developers to have a look at and to track you know the fortunes of both Glenville and the other developers on the site. And I think it'll be yeah, a good case study and benchmark um, you know, for future projects. Well, certainly on that, I'd say to um, to our listeners that want to know more about the Alfington paper mill, that if you just, I mean, it sounds a little bit lazy if I say just Google it, but if you do, there's an enormous amount of information about it, um, you know, about the project and historically uh, about what has happened on that site. Um, certainly more uh, details about the current project can be found at um, uh, glenville.com.au. Um, Andrew, I found this to be a really interesting discussion actually today. Um, and I guess a, you know, a wonderful piece of, um, you know, Melbourne history is the Alfington paper mills. And, and I hope that listeners, you know, do have a think about, um, you know, do look, do look up the history and, and, and have a think about it, you know, from 1919, um, you know, being the first purchase of the land, um, you know, for for the for the mere price, you know, fourteen thousand um, eight hundred pounds to a hundred and twenty million dollar acquisition in um, uh, two thousand and thirteen, and will turn into a multi billion dollar project is um, is just exactly how um, you know the the property prices move, and and certainly the drivers that we see within that. You know, this project's got it all, hasn't it? It's got you know technology, it's got infrastructure. Um, it's got a whole lot of stuff, you know, with regards to uh, population. Um, you know, you've got different zonings that have that, that that's changed as well, and and of course, being a you know multi-decade project, uh, the impact that the cycle and credit will have on this project will be um, absolutely huge. Yeah, absolutely. I think it yeah really covers a lot of what we talk about, um, and through yourself with the drivers of um, economic growth and the cycle, I think we're seeing it play out um, yeah, in front of us. Definitely. I think the other exciting thing too for me with this project that, um, you know, it sets the scene for the backside of or the second half of this um, of this property cycle that um, I think it'll inspire a lot of developers to, you know, take some risks that, um, you know, maybe they'll overcalculate and create a level of overconfidence with as well, which, you know, we'll see, um, you know, prices being bid up um, as we move through into the second half of the cycle. Yeah, no, definitely. I can certainly see that happening. Um, you know, we're due to be there, I think, sort of 2023. And I think Glenville will still have some sort of presence even into 2024 um, with the final um, portion. And then, you know, what happens with the other developers? 
Um, you know, they might just hold on to the, the land that they've bought and flip it over the next couple of years. And, yeah, I think it would be fascinating to see how that plays out as well. Well, I think it's pretty clear to me that either Glenville are, um, have been very, very astute in the timing of their purchase and um, the development of this site or um, or very lucky. The I guess the thing from a Glenville point of view, which will be interesting to watch, will be, you know, what happens next as this project starts to complete, where they go um, and where they move on from there. But, Andrew, it's been great having you. I really do appreciate um, you coming on and certainly wish you all the best for uh, for the remainder of the uh, the Glenville project, the Alfington Paper Mill project. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Jeremy, and hope all the listeners get um, get something out of it. Absolutely. To all our listeners, we'd love to help you on your journey, of course. Um, so feel free to get in contact with your questions and queries, and of course, don't forget to like, subscribe. Or leave us a review on Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Andrew Bacala, thanks for joining me. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan. And until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. You've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Any opinions, views or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. Your host, Jeremy Cownan and Cownan Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.